Thanks for downloading this University College Dublin Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording from Law and the Idea of Liberty in Ireland, from Magna Carta to the Present. This Irish Legal History Society conference took place in Christchurch Cathedral in November 2016. The event was organised to mark the 800th anniversary of the transmission of Magna Carta to Ireland. This episode features a paper by Sean Duffy from Trinity College Dublin. His paper was entitled The Political Background to Magna Carta, King John and Ireland. The lecture was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media. King John w- was born in 1167. Uh, um, so 1167 was the very year in which the exiled king of Leinster, Jermot McMurrah, uh, returned to um, Ireland with that first batch of foreign um, mercenaries and allies who would shortly uh, begin the conquest of Ireland for uh, themselves. And within four years, John's father, King Henry II, had come to Ireland, the first English king ever to set foot in Ireland, and he declared himself its lord. Um, And from that point onwards, there has been, in one form or another, a constitutional uh, link uh, between the two countries. So John's birth in 1167, therefore, meant that he belonged to that very first generation of Englishmen who couldn't remember a time when Ireland wasn't bound to England. I think that had obviously a formative influence on his dealings with the country. When he was just nine and a half years old, his father made John the Lord of Ireland, and he was to remain so until his death in 1216. That meant that he was master of Ireland for just a few months short of 40 years. In other words, nearly two and a half times longer than he was King of England. Um, so, and John, by the way, was the fourth and youngest of his father's uh, sons. Um, so for the first half of his life, nobody um, thought, except John himself, perhaps, that, that he would one day become King uh, of England. Uh, the late Lewis Warren was one of his most, uh, one of his great biographers. He said, fourth sons, even of a king, are among the more insignificant of God's creatures." I don't know if there are any fourth sons. I'm a seventh son myself, so how, how do I feel? Um, uh, so hence, when, when contemporaries did think of John, uh, uh, which wasn't very often, they thought initially not in terms of the throne of England, but of the niche that was being carved out for him by his father. And for the most part, that niche was Ireland. And no Irish historian who contemplates the reduction of Ireland to a colony of England places John far from the top of his uh, dramatis persona. Uh, and when it comes to Ireland, John tends to get quite a good press. Uh, Edmund Curtis thought he was, he must be regarded as one of the best of the foreign kings. Uh, Sidney Painter said that the only success of John's reign lay in Ireland. Uh, the late FX Martin claimed John, so often described as the worst of the kings uh, of England, was paradoxically the best for Ireland. 
Now, all such writers accept that John got off to a bad start with regard to the country when he first visited it in 1185 as a 17-year-old. This went disastrously wrong because of the offence John caused, and I I return to that. But the tendency has been to believe that he later mended his fences with the Irish uh, to such an extent that he recovered all the ground that was earlier lost. And um, his eventual return then to Ireland in 1210 was an unqualified success. And I mentioned Lewis Warren. He, he was for a very long time the most influential of the revisionist biographers of John and of John's dealings with Ireland. He even thought that the failings of that earlier exhibition in 1185 had been exaggerated. So he's the one who argued that in 1185 and, and afterwards, <clears throat> John was the mastermind behind a very clever, well-thought-out plan for the, uh, the expansion of the English colony in Ireland, for its gradual extension to cover the whole uh, island, and that ultimately John was a success for Ireland. And he has this extraordinary phrase in one of his papers where he says, King John was the most successful high king Ireland had ever seen. Now, I'm afraid I don't really find any of those descriptions uh, credible. So if we start with John's 1185 expedition. I don't believe that was anything other than a non-mitigated disaster, not just militarily speaking, but from a policy uh, standpoint. The Ireland into which the Anglo-Normans arrived in the late 1160s was a kingdom. And it was the intention of Henry II uh, that having conquered Ireland himself, John, his favourite son, would become king of this separate kingdom uh, of, of Ireland. He even sent embassies, uh, uh, emissaries off to the Pope to ask the, the Pope to provide John with a crown uh, so that he could be crowned king uh, of Ireland. John was, uh, was knighted in August 1184, Huge preparations then took place, and eventually he was packed off to Ireland in the spring of 1185. And the intention was that he would stay there as its king, and the, the, the papal crown would eventually, the crown from the papacy would eventually arrive uh, for him. He had a huge army at his disposal. Some of the top-level English administrators of the day, lawyers and diplomats and so on, they came with him. It cost his father a fortune, and it was intended to be a very major uh, development. The famous Geraldus Cambrensis was there. He travelled in the same ship as John, he tells us himself. He was specially sent by uh, the king to preserve a record of the the proceedings and a history of the colony uh, to date. And this is is the book uh, that he wrote, the first history of Ireland ever written, I, I know you you could all practically quote it um, verbatim, the Expugnatio uh, Hibernica. It is an extraordinary read, and clearly it was Henry II's um, hope that great things would flow from uh, these events. But, of course, it didn't quite work out uh, as planned. And according to Geraldus's testimony, now we only have his 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 word for this, and obviously we have to be, be careful, but things started to go pear-shaped right from the moment that John and his entourage um, disembarked at uh, Waterford. So this is Brian Scott's translation. As soon as the king's son arrived in Ireland, there came to meet him at Waterford the Irish of those parts, men of some note who'd hitherto been loyal to the English and peacefully disposed. 
They greeted him as their Lord and received him with a kiss of peace. But our newly arrived English treated them with contempt and derision and showing them scant respect, pulled some of them about by their beards, which were large and flowing according to the, the native custom. I think if I remember correctly, it was this very page from uh, the manuscript of Geraldus from the Royal Collection that the, in the exhibition uh, it was opened uh, uh, on this. And uh, uh, he then continues... As soon as they had regained their freedom, they made for the court of the king of Limerick, O'Brien. They gave him and also the Prince of Cork, McCarthy, and Rory O'Connor of Connacht a full account of all their experiences at the king's son's court. They reported that the son himself was a mere youth with an entourage of youths, a stripling who listened only to youthful advice. They held out no hope of mature councils or stable government in that quarter and no hope of any security for the Irish. They deducted that these, uh, sorry, they deduced that these small injustices would be followed by greater ones and debated amongst themselves how the English must intend to act against the overweening and the rebellious when men of good will who had kept the peace received this treatment. So with one accord they plotted to resist and to guard the privileges of their ancient freedom, even at the risk of their own lives. In order that they might be more effective in fulfilling this aim, they made pacts with each other throughout the country, and those who had previously been enemies now became friends for the first time. Now this mightn't be true, but it's, it's, it's a plausible enough account, account. There were certainly many Irish who had previously been loyal to the English, They'd accepted Henry II's overlordship, its sworn fealty to him. They presumably intended to do the same when John arrived. And perhaps it was John's mistreatment of them in this way that, um, that caused them to reject him and to rebel against them. But there was certainly more than that uh, going on. We still have a considerable number of charters that were issued by John when he was in Ireland in 1185, drawn up at various stages of his itinerary. One of them, at least, was issued at Waterford, so probably very shortly after his arrival. And it's a grant to Theobald Walter. Claire mentioned his brother, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, he's the ancestor of the butlers, the, the later earls uh, of, of Ormond, and it grants him a very substantial amount five and a half cantreds in what's now north county Tipperary and adjacent areas um, other grants in east and north Munster followed and we know that John built several castles in the area at Lismore and Waterford, Ardfinnan and Tipperary Tipperagny in South Kilkenny. Now from what we can tell the Irish of those areas had previously acquiesced in the Anglo-Norman settlement but clearly there was going to be no place for them uh, in this new uh, dispensation. And I think this probably lies behind another of the criticisms that Geraldus makes um, of John's expedition. He says, another additional reason for its failure is that we went back on our promises and bestowed on our new arrivals lands belonging to our supporters among the Irish who had stood by us right from the arrival of Robert Fitzstephen and the Earl. Uh, that's Strongbow in Ireland, they immediately went over to our enemies and, changing their roles, spied against us and guided the enemy to us, uh, being in a much better position to harm us because they'd previously been on much closer terms uh, with us. So, as I was saying, we have to take Geraldus' account with a pinch of salt because he clearly didn't hold John in very high regard, or certainly he didn't approve the company he kept. 
Um, and Geralis, of course, was a member of the wider Geraldine clan of the initial pioneers in, in Ireland, the people who paved the way for the establishment of, of, of the colony. Um, and they clearly resented John's intrusion of newcomers in uh, 1185. But yet his account of what happens can't just be, be, be dismissed of it. He was, um, he was um, appointed by John's father to write this account, and he presented it uh, to him. So um, uh, there must be something to it. And what he tells us is that the Lord John made some very serious errors of judgment in the early days after his arrival in Ireland. He provoked opposition even from unlikely quarters. For instance, uh, O'Brien, Donald Moore, the, the King of, of Thomond, he had been amongst the first to submit to Henry II when he arrived at Waterford in 1171. Yet in 1185, almost certainly because of these speculative grants I was mentioning, that uh, John was making on the borders of his kingdom, O'Brien refused to cooperate. And the annals report that he attacked two of those castles that at Ardfinan and Tiberagni that John <coughs> built in 1185. And as for McCarthy of Desmond, he was treacherously killed in that very year, parleying with Theobald Walter's men in, in Cork. So far from being a triumphant um, uh, procession through his new lordship, John's um, 1185 expedition saw some very dark days, and it became, in the end, a real embarrassment. And we don't have to rely for, for uh, Andrealis alone for that. There are a number of contemporary English chroniclers who reported something uh, similar. One of the best informed, for example, is Roger of Howden. He says that John, I quote, lost most of his army in numerous conflicts with the Irish. And in the end, he says, uh, after a stay of less than eight months, John was compelled to return to England penniless. <clears throat> so it was a military disaster, but as I was saying, I, I think also it was a political disaster. Because if you look objectively at what John was, was doing in 1185, there was territorial expansion, there were these new castle constructions uh, that, that was taking place, this new wave of it, and another wave of, uh, of colonisation. So John came to Ireland. He was claiming to be this, this soon-to-be-crowned king of Ireland. But in that, his first direct intervention in Irish affairs, he, he showed no desire to act as an impartial a lord of both native and newcomer. He was clearly an advocate of the latter's interests uh, only. So he couldn't or wouldn't envisage a form of government uh, for Ireland that didn't involve the alienation of the native uh, lords. So, and for the rest of the Middle Ages, the bulk of the Irish remained beyond the law, denied access to justice or participation in government, and this policy began with John's lordship in 1185. Uh, but that, that was John the, the boy. Um, what of John the man? You know, John, when he became king of, our, uh, king of England, did he become a more mature individual? Uh, did he have a more moderate approach? I don't think so, uh, I'm afraid. Um, if you examine the early months and years after John's accession uh, to the throne, you can see the same kind of um, uh, approach to the Irish. Um, uh, it, we witness grant after grant of Irish lands to loyal English barons, 
by 1204, the new king of Connacht uh, was Rory O'Connor's brother, Cahal Crove Jarag, Cahal of the Red Hand. And he and also Rofuelon, the king of the Irish of Dacia um, in West Waterford, they were duped into quitclaiming large stretches of their ancestral territories uh, in return for not very watertight assurances uh, of uh, tenure for, uh, for the, the remainder of their lands. And John was 11 years on the throne before he, he came to Ireland in person. And uh, we have then this famous 1210 campaign, which is normally categorised as a great success. But it seems to me we have the same contemptuous attitude towards the native kings then also. For instance, when John arrived in Ireland in 1210, the most important Irish king was probably Cahal Crove Jarg, the O'Connor king of, of Connacht. He submitted to John, he joined his host, he marched northwards to Ulster. Uh, John, of course, was, was going to Ulster to capture Carrickfergus Castle, which was held at that point by his Anglo-Irish baronial um, opponents, members of the de Lacy family, the de Brios family, who were his um, in opposition to him uh, at that uh, stage. They were conspiring against him. Of course, John was an utterly paranoid individual, uh, as historians uh, of his reign will know. But I mean, just because he was paranoid, it didn't mean that this, this opposition wasn't beginning to, to gather uh, against him, and, uh, so, which is why he, he came here. And so it was while he was in Ulster that he asked Cahal Krovjarg to bring back his son to him, his intended heir, so that John could hold the son as a hostage to ensure Cahal's future good behaviour. Now, the problem with King John, uh, one of the cliches of his reign, is that you could not trust him with hostages because they had a nasty habit of vanishing into thin air and never seeing the light of day uh, again. So when Cahal Krovjarg returned home and he told his wife that this was what he was planning to do. She was obviously a typical Irish mammy. She said, you know, it's not going to happen. And it didn't happen. So two weeks later, John went to meet, Carl uh, uh, Krovjog met with King John, but without the son, and all hell uh, broke loose. The relations between the two were so soured that after John's departure for England, there was a direct government backlash, his forces began a major new um, threatening uh, enterprise, the building of Athlone Castle. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with that Athlone Castle, over that vital crossing point on the Shannon, but it's on the western side of the Shannon, inside the province of Connacht, in Cahill's territory. And uh, clearly this was, uh, the conquest of Connacht was about to begin. And the government organised an invasion of Connacht by the colonists of Meath and Leinster, and another one by colonists from Munster and by sort of dissatisfied members of the O'Connor dynasty. So that is the price that Cahal Jar paid for his refusal to hand over his intended heir uh, to King John. The other most important Irish provincial king in 1210 was A. O'Neill in Ulster. And when John was in Carrickfergus, there were negotiations between both sides. John sought that O'Neill would become his vassal, uh, pay him an annual tribute for his lands. But again, John sought hostages from O'Neill. And the Irish annals, um, these Munster annals, the annals of Inish Fallon, have this account of it. Messengers came to O'Neill to his house 
to seek hostages. And he said, depart, O foreigners, I will give you no hostages at all. The foreigners departed, and he gave no hostages to uh, the king. So O'Neill, too, suffered from this refusal to give John uh, important political hostages. And within a year, John's deputy in Ireland, a man called John de Grey, was leading an army northwards to try to bring uh, O'Neill into uh, submission. It wasn't terribly successful. In other words, <clears throat> we're often told that the 1210 expedition by John to Ireland um, was an extraordinary success, particularly in his relations with the native Irish, because he was determined to um, uh, establish good relations with them now that he'd fallen out with so many of, it, of the Anglo-Irish barons. But it seems to me... Uh, that he, he left Ireland on bad terms with the two most important Irish kings, O'Connor and, and O'Neill. And therefore, uh, the 1210 expedition must be considered a failure like most of his, his other projects. Uh, it was intended to produce a settlement between the King of England and the provincial kings of Ireland, uh, but it failed to produce such a settlement. The negotiations collapsed. And King John left the country to the warfare that had consumed it before his uh, arrival. Now, within a couple of years, that baronial uh, opposition uh, that gave rise to Magna Carta had begun to suffer surface. Uh, now, unlike the majority of the barons of England, most Anglo-Irish barons remained loyal to John during the emergency. And because the barons remained loyal the native Irish staged uh, revolt. Yet the history books make little or no mention uh, of this. It's partly because the sources for it are, are fairly meagre. But it's also partly because historians have, have convinced themselves that the Irish remained loyal and therefore um, there isn't uh, anything to it. But this is simply not the case. And that's why shortly after John died in October 1216, the Pope wrote to his legate in Ireland ordering him, and I quote, to fulfil his office faithfully and prudently in bringing about a peace between the Irish and the King. So as far as the papacy was concerned, the Irish had been at war uh, with uh, King John. The papal legate at that point was none other than the Archbishop of Dublin, who would have walked these hallowed grounds in his day, um, a man called Henry of London. And he had been John's deputy until about a year or so uh, earlier. He was also famously the second most senior of the witnesses to um, Magna Carta in June 1215. And having the king's ear, the Archbishop of Dublin uh, was able to intercede on the citizens' behalf, and he did so to great effect. In August 1214, John granted Dublin a confirmation of its annual eight-day fair, the famous uh, Donnybrook Fair. He also gave the citizens a license to build a new bridge over the Liffey and demolish the old bridge. There's only ever one bridge over the Liffey in the Middle, the middle Ages. Um, John, uh, in July 1213, in the 3rd of July, so that's less than three weeks after the granting of the more famous charter at, at Runnymede, John issued another one granting the fee farm of Dublin to, to the citizens. Now, this is the annual sum that was due to the Exchequer in return for uh, the king allowing the citizens to administer its revenues. So that's mostly property rents and tolls on trade, that kind of thing. So before 1215, that farm was collected in Dublin by King John's own officials. And presumably, 
The citizens wanted the fee farm in order to collect it themselves and use what surplus came in for their own uh, municipal activities rather than lining the pockets of John's men. The actual farm was set in perpetuity at a fixed rate of 200 marks, about £233, which I think was a bit of a bargain, which was wrung from John because of his straitened circumstances at that, at that time. But the citizens also got another important concession. By the 1215 Charter, John granted them the provostship and all other appurtenances. Now, Dublin didn't have a mayor until 1229, so the provostship was its then equivalent of the chief officer of the municipal corporation, the chief magistrate who presided over the, the hundred court, the city's uh, court. And before 1215, the provost of Dublin was John's representative in the city. After 1215, the city provostship and all other such positions were municipal appointments. So if you're a Dubliner, 1215 was a very important year for you. These were very fundamental developments in Dublin's emergence as an autonomous city in charge of its own affairs, choosing its own leaders, collecting its own revenues, and then dispensing those revenues as its citizens saw, saw fit. So it can be said, I think, that just like the barons at Runnymede, the citizens of Dublin knew how to wring concessions out of John in his time of need. And in that sense, bad King John was good King John if you're one of these new English settlers who dominated uh, Dublin at that time. The citizens of Dublin also felt secure from Irish attack because in 1204 it had been John who ordered the construction of Dublin Castle. Uh, it wasn't just to protect them, it was to hold his treasure, uh, but it was a very fundamental development as well for the future safeguarding of the city. And 1204 was important too because in that year the English citizens of Ireland, or the English citizens beyond Dublin's walls. Uh, I I, I hope there are some lawyers present because I put this bit in for you. That was the year 1204 in which John introduced into Ireland the application of those legal writs like Mort Dancester and um, Novel de Season and so on that had developed in England during the the reign of his father, Henry II. Uh, In fact, uh, Roger of Wendover, who's a well-informed English chronicler, says that it was while John was in Dublin in 1210 that he ordained that England was to have all the laws and customs of England. That's why, therefore, Magna Carta transferred so quickly to Ireland uh, after that. And yes, it is true, I think, that in the successful transplanting into Ireland of the common law of England, uh, the, the law of the king's court, uh, that was largely the handiwork of John's lordship. So I think we can probably agree with Edmund Curtis's judgment that John was the founder of Anglo-Ireland. Uh, but, but John didn't claim to be lord of Anglo-Ireland. He claimed to be lord of Ireland. So it is possible by some interpretations, that he was a good lord of Anglo-Ireland. I I simply myself happen to believe that he was a bad lord of Ireland. Uh, And I'm going to leave it there. And therefore, I I find myself in agreement with with these guys (laughs) after all these years. Anyway, thank you very much.